Good evening, and welcome to another episode of the Living Fiction Podcast, cheeky memoirs of how a DID system became a manipulator's personal puppet show. Twice. I am your host and the host of the Living Fiction System, Xanth C.L. Zeitstruck. Hello! So, this is going to be a very dark episode. It's going to include suicidal feelings, it's going to include abusive relationships, gaslighting, and just the devolving of a long-term relationship. And not only am I going to add trigger warnings to this episode, which I try to do probably about 90% of the time, but I am going to give a forward just in case you're having trouble keeping track of everyone through these convoluted memoirs. So, for reference, April, Buchanan, and Avery are code names crafted for either the sake of them being anonymous or my own amusement. April is my abusive partner in this period of time. Buchanan is April's friend that had a thing for Avery briefly. Avery is a love interest in this part of the story, who I had made out with, only to discover that my partner didn't mean it when she said she was cool with polyamory. Everything else described here did happen in my outer world, aside from the flirting briefly mentioned regarding Casper. April's and my relationship wasn't exactly what one would call stable, or sensical, or even somewhat humane. I was losing sleep to be able to hang out with Cotton, Casper, Abberley, and Avery, the four horsemen to herald the apocalypse of my three-year abusive relationship. In the meantime, I was slowly figuring out my gender identity, especially due to knowing Casper, who nearly represented every androgynous goal I'd ever had. Of course, April dismissed these longings in her usual brazen way. I don't care for this half-and-half shit. I'm attracted to girls, and I'm attracted to guys, but I don't want someone who's a unicorn down there. I took it as also an insult to Casper, who is intersex. Given Casper's and my barely disguised flirting, it was likely intended to be an insult. It was to the point where entertaining April seemed like a tedious, stressful job, and my actual job seemed like an escape from it. We'd been butting heads about the morality of polyamory, especially since April took to boasting about how enlightened she was that we were in an open relationship. I told my class that we're not monogamous, and they acted so shocked. I guess not everyone has heard of open relationships. She actually looked superior. I stared at her for a full minute before going back to typing on my laptop screen. Not only did I not know where to begin with that, but life was just too bloody short. I'd been thinking lately that our monogamy was assumed rather than discussed particularly as she still had trysts with her ex-boyfriend every summer. I altogether didn't feel like I'd ever consented to being monogamous. Yes, some of this could be attributed to my odd militaristic thought experiment I called a moral code, but default monogamy is still bullshit. What she pulled on me after I'd first kissed Avery was still bullshit. The fact that I'd barely begun my time as host before I'd found myself shackled to her, still bullshit. A lot of you have probably wondered why I simply didn't break up with her by now. I was actually hoping that she might break up with me and save me from an Amy Dunn type of situation. Wait, isn't that what Nick was hoping Amy would have- Fuck. 
I keep forgetting the plot of Gone Girl, and it continues to be my downfall. <laughs> but instead of an anniversary being a pivotal point, it was April's birthday. The party included the abominable Buchanan, who was not only a pretentious twat, but also had been crushing on Avery. Avery had rejected him, and Buchanan was taking it about as well as his namesake. Cotton and Avery had both been invited to April's birthday dinner, so obviously it was their duty to save me. They seemed not to know this, as Cotton decided to leave early, and Avery didn't show up at all. Which, honestly, very odd for Avery. They were and are anal retentive to a fault. The party was at Barracuda Bob's on River Street. They have a carafe of sangria there. I decided that I might actually survive the night, Dionysus willing. After the first hour of compulsively surveying the front door for Avery's survival, I checked my phone. See, Avery was dysphoric. Okay, that's a blatant understatement. It would be more accurate to say that the obsessive hatred Avery has for their body could power a small country and they'd still research anatomy to find reasons to hate it even more. They had the build of Jack Skellington and fervently insisted that he had a body like Kim Kardashian. It's been an ongoing issue and would contribute to our breakup years later, but on this particular day, when Avery hadn't responded to any of my texts, I happened to notice what their latest status update on Facebook was. Either I will fix this body, or I will destroy it. Oh, that's not a good sign. That wasn't anything I was willing to process in front of the likes of April and Buchanan. I managed to ignore the creeping feeling of dread for a good while before Buchanan also spied the status and related it to Avery's auspicious absence. Where are they? I remember him asking with a chuckle. Did they die? Someone replied. I can't remember who. I tactically seated myself away from the little prick. He laughed and replied to someone. Watch, we're gonna go back to the dorms just to see them laying on the hood of someone's car and they've jumped off the roof or something. He continued on like that as our collective group spilled out onto the river walk. I was quite vividly visualizing throwing Buchanan into the Savannah River as we slowly sauntered past the tourist. Hell, it may even work out as a birthday present for April. Things have been tense between them since April had stepped away from her transona. I feel that, looking back, my accidental affair with Avery had ruined the appeal of trans masculinity for April. She'd even said a few offhanded things about how she was glad that she was out of that phase, and that some people turn gender into an obsession. I'd noticed that April had been more insulting in her references to Buchanan as of late, even disclosing to me that he was annoyingly butthurt over Avery's rejection. He told me about this mouse that he and Avery had found and tried to rescue one day. And after the whole thing with Avery, he was like, I hope that mouse dies because Avery touched it. It was at this point I was deciding that the world was really better off without another redheaded twat that ate Chick-fil-A but criticized other bad queers. We were near Olympia Cafe, just about 25 meters from the river. Could I really pick him up by the scruff of 
his neck like a cartoon. Maybe I could just... There are so, so many reasons why I call this twat Buchanan. And then April started pretending that she was blind. Because of course she did. It wasn't obvious at first. April and I both carried canes, not only for aesthetic purposes, but for on-hand defense, as well as the hip issues we both had. I started noticing that April would stare straight ahead as we moved through town with the party crowd and lightly tap the curb with her cane before tentatively stepping up on it. Sometimes her cane would hit a pole and she'd abruptly swerve away from it as our group walked and talked. Oh, you have got to be shitting me. She swept the cane back and forth, using it to scan the sidewalk in front of her as we moved through Savannah downtown. She was apparently hoping that everyone would buy into the theory that she had gone totally blind during her birthday dinner, didn't reach out out of sheer stoicism or some bullshit, and immediately gracefully adapted to using a mobility aid in the span of about an hour. I didn't react. No one else noticed, thankfully. She miraculously regained her sight within the hour. It's a Christmas miracle. Well, get it out of here. But where the hell was Avery? I'd begun fearing the worst. After all, undisclosed university had an eerie history of covering up student suicides. I'd heard of them intercepting such incidents before the news even got wind of them. I actually wasn't able to grapple with the full reality of that possibility. Of Avery's life being cut short, of just never seeing them again, wondering what I could have done to prevent such a thing. Instead, the more selfish, petulant side of me was brewing an entire tantrum. All I could think of was that I could have kissed Avery more so by then. We could have spent the night together showing each other movies and having tea. Instead, I was framed by this overgrown toddler for cheating while she boasted to her classmates about how we were in an open relationship. How bloody woke. There was a thought slowly gaining traction in my head. I don't have to live a life that revolved around bloody April. I could break it off myself. I could live a life of unrestrained love, of less tension, of overall freedom. It was Avery's disappearance that lit the fire under my ass, despite everything else they later turned out to be. They've always been a grade-A catalyst. After two years of dating and six years of the system collectively knowing her, I decided that I would break up with April. And I want to ensure my loyal followers that despite the multiple attempts to compare her to Amy Dunn, she did not pull a gone girl on me. I really might have preferred that she did. So in my blogs, I usually try to differentiate what is going on within the in-world, the world of the DID system, and what is going on with the outer world by use of font, because the in-world I usually use italics just to tell my audience what's going on. Now, given that this is a podcast, I don't have fonts. So what I am going to try to do, and I do want feedback on this, by the way, everything involving the in-world, I'm going to give background music, kind of more eerie background music, and everything not, it's just going to be plain. Now, if you still have trouble differentiating, if 
there's magic involved, if everything is a lot more dramatic, if I am suddenly in Europe, that is a pretty good sign that I am actually in my in-world. It changes a lot during this particular day because it was a nasty mental breakdown. And that is right, folks, you are having a two-for-one sale on my trauma today. You're welcome. The trigger warnings for this episode are as follows, and honestly, this is one of the worst days of my life, so take caution with this. Abusive relationships, car crashes, existential issues, blackmail, depersonalization, suicidal ideation, and of course, anger. For anyone who is having trouble remembering who everyone is, April is my abusive partner. Ash is my abusive ex-metamore in these present days. Aranon and Rebecca, those who have claimed to either adopt me or were my natural parents of my past lives that Ash claimed to channel. Sound and Koshi, two altars of mine, married to Jack. Jack was an altar of mine, originally created and controlled by April. Zaxalari is the altar that currently co-hosts with me. That being said, let's begin. It was about a week since Avery had gone missing, and I was running out of alternative theories on why. Maybe it was two weeks? I was fading in and out of my inworld so often those days that it was hard to tell. But I'll never forget that it was a Tuesday night when I heard a knock on my door. What I saw when I opened it will always be ingrained in my memory. Avery. They had a neck-length mane of platinum blonde hair. They were wearing jeans and black tank top, which did wonders for their arm and shoulder musculature. They had a roguish smirk, leaning against the doorframe. The sun had set not too long ago, the lighting a deep turquoise and my door light illuminating the front of them with a warm orange. Express delivery from the nut hut, they said hoarsely. We embraced. It was all something out of a film. I made them a pot of tea and watched as they sat in my living room and scooped an absurd amount of honey into their glass teacup. I told them in a rushed tone about my doomed relationship. I don't think I discussed April with them before that night, only the misunderstanding and why we weren't allowed to make out anymore. I'd recounted how April had reacted to my moving into my workplace, starting the story with, oh, it was really funny when she, as the story went on, Nearly to the end, Avery interrupted me. Wait, she hit you? I stared at them. Well, yeah, but she's like 90 pounds soaking wet. Avery stared back. Still, though. I feel like I actually heard the phrase, it's not like that, run through my skull before dismissing it entirely. I just feel too cliché. As I finished with the explanation of why I would break up with April, Avery began telling me why it was they were forcibly committed to the nut hut for the past several days. I can't believe that undisclosed university commits you for being suicidal, they griped, as if such a thing were a complete plot twist. Well, did you say that you had a plan? Is it that the rule went, you weren't considered suicidal unless you had it more planned out than most 18-year-olds had their professional careers? No, they said, baffled. But they wouldn't believe me. I had to pull down my pants and literally show them all of the cuts all over my genitals. 
One problem at a time, boy. They also disclosed to me that they would be forced to leave undisclosed for financial reasons. It was a raw confession, peppered with tears. I wanted so badly to comfort them, but they had also already said that they didn't want to be touched at the moment. Our time as a couple would have to come to a close before it had ever technically begun. But there is still a little over of a month left. All the more reason to break up with April. The tension was finally broken by a knock at the door. Is that someone from your work? Avery asked. No, I admitted. I panicked and ordered us a pizza. It was at least another week where I had to build up the carriage. By that point, I hated the institution of monogamy as a default almost as much as I hated gender roles. It had gotten to the point where I didn't even want a relationship. Just to kiss and flirt and fuck and romance as the moment and the other person demanded. I was essentially planning to Dorian Gray myself around life, minus the murder. Unless you ask nicely. A relationship in general seemed like an entire cage around me. The expectations, the rules that were unspoken until violated, how it seemed to turn romance into a business agreement. That seemed like an easier excuse to break things off somehow. Somewhere in the same vein of, Sorry, but I'm gay. Sorry, I'm moving far away from work. Sorry, I'm giving up relationships for Lent. I felt as if I were crafting my explanation of my very dreams when my phone rang around 5am. It was Koji. Can you get a hold of Jack? His shaky tone was all too familiar to me. I was hoping to hang out with Adrenaline and Sumaya. He knows I have a crush on Adrenaline, and he got really mad. I snapped at him, and he drove off in the car without me. We're on the border of France and Germany. It was raining really hard, and we're on, like, a mountain, and so I'm worried. Even though Jack is in danger of dying about every other week. Even Prosper, one of my personal favorites in the hot Hanasaki household, had taken to getting plastered and being a sort of chaotic peanut gallery to Jack's threats. Oh no, he's really gonna do it this time. 30th time's the charm. I'd tried calling a few people, but no one had seen him since he stormed out of that tavern on the border. I consoled Koji and told him that his husband would probably show up tomorrow, probably still steaming in his Berlin apartment. I went back to sleep, confident in the thought that of all the things that I lose sleep over, it soon will no longer be April's arguments. April always did hate going out for Mondays, but I convinced her that day to meet me at the Griffin Tea Room for an early sort of date. It was about 2pm in the afternoon. It was shaping up to be a somewhat pleasant day. Sunny, partly cloudy, mid-70s. The brutality of summer was creeping around the corner and threatening us under its hot, humid breath, but it was still pleasant for now. I remember wearing my velvet frock coat once again. There must be something about that coat and pivotal moments in my life. Just before we'd gotten the bill, I awkwardly launched into my line of thought. It's not that I just don't want a monogamous relationship. I don't want a relationship at all. I mean, think of it. When we started dating, I was grappling with the fact that I wasn't nap. I was briefly interrupted when the waitress brought back the bill. April hung her bag over her shoulder and tore away from the table of empty dishes. I walked quickly after her. 
Unlike about half of her angry escapes, this was at least leading us neatly towards her dorm. April, it's not like I don't still care about you. Like, I know that's a stereotype to say, it's not you, it's me, but I really don't think I'm made for relationships in general. I'm not even from here. I'm fictional. You're literally dating a fictional character. It's not good for you either. You and Aberly treat not belonging in reality like it's some exclusive club, and I'm sick of it, she snapped. I was the one who made it, and you ruined everything. Here, yeah, my memory seems to fade out like a burning theater tape. When I came to, we were already in April's dorm. The conversation had progressed by probably five minutes through what Zaktalari didn't want me to see, and still doesn't. I was catching only the tail end, wherein April was saying, because of me, slash, us, that she could never go back to Dominic's, she could never see her friends like Jack again. This won't change anything, I watched my mouth say, seemingly without my permission. You'll always be able to see Jack. This was the first time I remember ever being aware of Zaxolari. He's been present before that, since Neb split in 2012, evidently. But this was the first time I've ever witnessed him, and I wouldn't know who this was for years. No, I won't. I felt a pang of guilt upon the realization that April was crying softly through her words. The system had known April for a collective six years. Sometimes she'd been the only one who wanted to talk to us, and now we were breaking her heart. Because, she sobbed, Jack was found today lying face down in a river. I cannot explain to you what those words did to me, but I'll do my best. Suddenly, I was on a muddy hill in Germany. The sun had sank below the horizon, leaving everything in a Tim Burton blue cast. The air was cold and damp, chilling me more so when I heard sound wailing. You ever see the scene from the movie Hereditary where the mother is grieving? It was just like that. I looked down the hill at the shallow river. Indeed, there is a shock of platinum blonde hair and some colorful jacket floating in the river with a cloud of blood just beneath him. He appeared to have the car's engine through him. I didn't look too closely. Gore makes me nauseated. Once I saw the pink tones, possible twisted flesh, my eyes darted away as I retched. Koji was even paler than usual, standing so still that I didn't think him breathing. He turned to me. His eyes were so utterly haunted that it frightened me to look at him, as if he had been reduced to the dead Elizabethan child he once was. How did you get here? The desperate yet airy tone of his voice was something that seemed to wonder if he was dreaming, or that my suddenly appearing could be proof of it. I shook my head, wondering if I were dreaming myself. How did I get here? Maybe Vex helped me here after I heard the news. I mentally retraced myself to April's dorm. Then I was in that same dorm again. I could hear the body's voice saying, What did you do? What did you do? April shook her head, sniffling. It's ruined. You didn't have any friends, so I made it all so you wouldn't be alone, and now it's ruined. I'm so done having hope for you. You did this. You ruined it. 
You're saying I did this? It was actually me speaking through my own mouth this time. My voice was rising to a hysterical pitch. It had hardly ever known. It actually hurt my throat. I didn't do anything to Jack! I tried to break up with you! I was realizing something. Something I didn't want to. Neb. Neb ended high school with no friends. Except for April. I made it all so you wouldn't be alone. I know you love them more than me, April shouted, making me jump out of my disturbing reverie. You always have, and you can't have them if you don't have me. What are you saying? My voice was ragged. The existential terror was raw in me, seeming to slice up my entire ventricle system with every pulse. Then my mouth seemed to move on its own again, a rigid wooden tone. April, Jack has a family. He has two spouses. Take it back. I didn't necessarily understand what take it back meant, but if it meant sounds broken screams would stop echoing through my ears, I was all for it. April was shaking her head. If I do, you'll just hold this against me. You never listened. I'm so done having hope. It's done. He's gone. The way she said he's gone wasn't a grieving confession. It was said in the same tone that a bad parent would say, Fine, your bedroom door, that's gone, too. I remembered eyeing the door. April lived on only the second floor of our house. If I sprinted to the top and jumped, I could just not have to think about this anymore. Maybe the creeping realization hadn't settled in my brain yet. Maybe I could just dash my skull open and that poison of what I was discovering would just spill out and I'd never have to hear those screams again. I took steps to the door to do just that. It wasn't self-destruction on my part. It was self-preservation. forced back to the banks of that damned river. I leaned against the tree, feeling as if I were suffering from mental whiplash. Once I'd gotten my bearings, I yelled, Call Pureblood! Get Dominic! Because you were staring at me as if I were crazy. You are literally a goddamn dead vampire child they brought back to life. Do not tell me this 10,000-year-old bounce science project is going to die in a bloody car crash today. Get Dominic! I was in two places at once somehow. I could tell what was going on from the surface, even though his axillary had put me in another suicide timeout. Sort of like I was listening to an audiobook and reading a print book at the same time. I had to shift my focus to tell what was going on in each. Zaxillari wasn't up to writing this part, but he gave me the go-ahead to repeat what he'd told me. There is a point during his time on the surface world, in between all of his negotiating and pleading, that he accidentally fell back onto April's MacBook keyboard. April's tone had changed. She was, so far, acting as if she had just gotten helplessly trapped by an overactive imagination, but when she sensed her laptop was in danger, her tone shifted to her normal shop tone. That better not be damaged. I'll make you pay for it if it is. It was a crack in the oddly remorseful facade. It occurred to Zaxillary that April viewed this all as a game. You know how it's a cliche for a lot of animes that the unnaturally intelligent male protagonist needs to show off how good they are at chess? 
I think that's how April sold herself in this moment. And this was check. You win. I heard me question mark saying. You found my currency. You know what you can use against me. Well done. Now, what do you want? Just tell me what you want me to say. The tone was wooden. A leashed dog brought to heel. April sniffled. There's no point. You won't trust me. You won't show care. You don't love me. There's no point in any of you existing. The last line knocked the wind out of me. Any of you existing. Casper, Koji, Prosper, Abilene, myself? No, no, that's not true. Of course I love you. Of course I trust you. Zaxalari was lying through his teeth on the surface. Meanwhile, I stole Jack's soul from the afterlife just to keep him here a while longer. Dominic and Luel were working with healing Jack's broken body. At one point, Zaxalari had to run to the restroom and soak his hands in the sink, then dripped water into his eyes. Then he wrapped our arms around April, nestling her cheek so she could feel the tears. See? I'm crying. I, I care. I I love you. I love you so much. He hated her. We both did. Each lie cut into us, both realizing begging her to let Jack live was the only way to go about this. I love you. I trust you. I'm sorry about earlier. I was just scared that I didn't deserve you. No, of course I'm not breaking up with you. Each line was like a flog against my spirit i bitterly reproached myself for every word hell i pride myself about not lying about emotion she is the only one that has ever received a false i love you from me and i hate that she made herself the only blotch on that record she protested at first citing my flaws and general misbehaving as a reason she couldn't let someone else live no, being in a relationship makes you feel like you're in a cage. No, I'm abusive, remember? No, Neb was a different person, remember? It was just more begging, promising to behave, apologizing in just the right way. It was the same damnable game she always forced us to play, only now I knew how high the stakes were. Zaxalari was eventually winning, having apparently convinced April that we cared the right way. I even caught him as he was even proposing that the other world would bring the two of us closer. In the end, Jack was free of the car engine and somehow back to the land of the living. It wasn't feeling nearly so miraculous with Zax and I both realizing that our begging to a petulant toddler saved him. The unwelled version of events is that I was able to locate and hold Jack's soul like it was a squirming lost cat as Dominic and Luil healed his body. I remember standing there, gutted, as Sound and Koji had embraced Jack. They promised to be better spouses to him and I felt utterly sick. I felt separate from them, separate from everyone and everything. I wasn't quite of the surface world, and now I knew too much of the in-world too. It was as if 
I were a character in a story being written, but had met the author and realized that they intended to kill us all. And there was nothing I could do but keep trying to keep everyone alive. I got out of April's dorm at around 11am that night. I can only account for about three hours of that 11 hour nightmare. When I went home, I threw up in the bathroom, then laid in my bed and I just screamed. I screamed into the pillow, clawed at the sheets. It was just uncontrollable wailing of existential horror, rage and despair. As much as I wanted to die, as much as I felt I needed to die, I knew that I had to play the game to make sure that I could keep everyone alive for God's knew how long. I didn't know what to make of it. Did she create me? The identity that was always so precious to me, was it a whim of hers that she now regretted? Were we all just a perpetual puppet show to her, friends, lovers, children, and gods that she could Xanos away if I didn't want to date her? Did Neb's overactive imagination and crushing loneliness force her into doing this? It was all love crafty and levels of horrifying that I shuddered to think about. What I did know is that I tried to break up with April, and she had the power to kill Jack in response. I felt trapped. I was trapped in that relationship, trapped in the real world, trapped in knowing that I didn't belong in my in-world or the outer world, and I never did. See, this is what the household decided to deliver me to on a silver fucking platter. Aside from Arcady's system, he has no financial independence, so I wager he ultimately doesn't have a fucking choice. Ash, Azra, and March have no problem endorsing transphobes, racists, and literal abusers so long as they don't have to admit that they tortured a triggered mentally ill person, gaslit the fuck out of me, and then condemned me and harassed me for speaking up about it. They literally convinced me of past lives, told me that they were sleeping with my altars, and mocked me for believing them. These disgusting, vile, blackmailing, lying, pathetic, delusional twats. This is what they represent. This is apparently better to them than speaking up about abuse. And that is irredeemable. Not only fuck them, but unless they were literally locked away with no way of getting with me. Fuck Aranon, who left his child to be lynched twice. Fuck Rebecca, who watched a group scapegoat her adoptive child and didn't offer so much as a fucking word in response. And honestly, considering the power they have and the promises they've made, I think Ash disgusts me most of all. Because Ash even had an abuser that held dubiously real people hostage when Ash would misbehave. Ash pretended to channel the altars of other people. Ash pretended to channel my late fucking girlfriend. Ash was told their DID wasn't real by their abuser. And now they've turned around and done the same fucking thing to me just because I wouldn't date them at first and went for their partner instead. Ash... It's just as bad as Tatiana, their ex, and if not, worse. Once you escape an abuser, you're not supposed to absorb them like Kirby, you bloody, abhorrent hypocrite.